This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Reconstructionist by Jonathan J. Foster. With so much changing in our society around sexuality, authority, patriarchy, religion, truth, and more, what we need is a book to help us navigate those changes while keeping love at the forefront. The Reconstructionist is that kind of book. Pick a copy up today on Amazon or any other fine digital retailer. The Reconstructionist. People greater than text, mercy greater than sacrifice, and love greater than fear. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast. Game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode, we're wrapping up our engagements with Angels in America with a discussion about characters wrestling with angels, Jacob in the Hebrew Bible, and Pryor and Joseph in Angels in America. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird. And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. And hey, listeners. It's good to be back with all of you. We know you have your choice of lots and lots of podcasts to listen to, and we're really happy that you're spending time with us. Absolutely. Yeah. So as we're getting back to Angels in America, Jennifer is going to talk with us a bit about the Jacob story and read this Genesis scene of Jacob wrestling with the angel. Jennifer, do you want to start us off? Absolutely. Let's just jump right in. So the story that we're reading from Genesis, as Jean just said, is this, the passage where Jacob ends up wrestling with someone, a figure, a man, or an angel, or something. And this comes after many, many sagas in his life, you could say. And so this is the scene that is actually being referenced in Angels in America in a couple different ways. One time, Joseph refers to it in a really interesting way. And then another time, it's almost as if Pryor is reenacting it. So it's kind of a fun scene that I think we will be reading here in a minute. So this is in the middle of chapter 32 of Genesis. The same night, he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. 
But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. (laughs) I know. I love that last part. Yeah, I love those little details. Biblical narrative is always made so wonderfully strange and bizarre with those little <laughs> with those little details. Exactly. So in my conversation with Deb Holstein, we were talking about how Deborah, both as a Jewish woman and as someone connected with education at a synagogue, Deborah really identifies with this metaphor of wrestling as an observant Jewish woman. And she reminded me that the name Israel means he who strives with God or he who wrestles with God. When she thinks of her own Jewish community, she joyfully says, we're God wrestlers. So I think one of the interesting aspects of this metaphor of wrestling is that there are folks who experience their faith as a wrestling with God, not as a set of certainties about God, not as a set of concrete beliefs about God, but as a kind of a wrestling. And I think that's cool and really open. Mm -hmm. Have you heard Mm -hmm. that? I'm guessing you have. I have. I have. And I do. I like what it says about the lack of certainty, the challenge, the striving, but in a positive kind of a way, trying to get somewhere, right? Trying to work something out. I actually, I have to, I hope this isn't inappropriate for me to toot my own horn a bit, but one of the people who blurbed my book, Permission Granted, referred to Mm -hmm. me as a God wrestler. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was touched by that because of what I took him to be saying, right? was something similar. There are some I'm talk I'm engaging the biblical texts and in that way wrestling with what I'd been taught to think about God wrestling in front in front of other people to see this is what it looks like and this is okay to to ask these questions and to challenge some of these things and so yeah I I I like that. I feel like it's a much more active way of talking about your faith or it's an enacted faith that way, right? Yes, I I like that as well. I also like wrestling as a metaphor for what we do with biblical texts. Mm -hmm. Sometimes particular Christian traditions, there are certain Christian interpretive traditions that can be frustrating for me because sometimes in conversation, it sounds like certain readers lock down the meaning of biblical texts much too tightly. Mm -hmm. And I would rather have a wrestling, the kinds of conversations about biblical texts that I really enjoy, either with students or with colleagues or with friends, are um, conversations about texts in which we're wrestling with the text, which I think is a very honest way to engage biblical texts. I agree. I agree. And of course, in the play, there are lots of different kinds of wrestling going on. We will read that section where 
Pryor actually wrestles with an angel. That's a really fun and funny scene. So we'll we'll get to that. But maybe before we get to that, I'd like to talk about some of the other kinds of wrestling that go on in the play because we've got characters who are wrestling with all kinds of things. Characters are wrestling with their ideas about God. Pryor is wrestling with his call to prophecy. Hannah's wrestling with the fact that her son has come out as gay to her, and she's an observant Mormon woman and is freaked out by that, and she's wrestling with that. Harper is wrestling with the fact that her husband is gay, and that's why he neglects her, and that's why she feels so gaslighted and surrounded Mm -hmm. by lies because their entire marriage is a lie. Joe is wrestling with coming out to himself, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Lewis is wrestling—go ahead, jump in, Jennifer. Yeah, I I was just going to say, Lewis is wrestling with— trying to be an ethical partner, an honest, loving, present partner. And he finds he is lacking and can't do it. I I find his character really interestingly honest. Yes. Yes. Um, I think I think we'd all like to think that we would be there. And I don't know, you know, but I think it's kind of lovely that Kushner kept a character who kind of just is not the greatest no. when it comes to, to partnership. Yeah, he yeah. fails. He really does. Yeah. And he comes back at the end. But yeah, I mean, his his wrestling is with this issue of death and yes. the messiness of bodies. And for me, as as a scholar and a biblical scholar, I, I tend to take issue with this part of our culture because we're, we're not given space to talk about it more freely than we are. And and I think that that leads to something kind of like Lewis, right? Who's like, I, I, I'm scared. I don't like this ugliness of his body deteriorating and being, you know, all these different sores and he's going to die and he's my partner and mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with that, right? Honest and goodness, wouldn't it be nice if we had better ways to talk about some of those things. A little more, I don't know, freely is the word, but we were given the permission to talk about some of those things a little bit better, I guess, than we do. Yes, if we could be better prepared to cope with the dying process. The dying process is a messy, scary process. And in American culture, we sometimes try to keep it out of sight. Exactly. Even the aging process, we try sometimes yep. to keep yep. it out of sight. If people get to be a certain age, in some families, we scuttle our parents off to places where they can live where they're out of sight. Right. And right. so American wanna... culture is particularly uncomfortable with <clears throat> death and dying. Yes. And uh, the, the language of sanitizing it mm-hmm. is what comes to mind when we're talking about this. I mean, we don't want to be... We don't want to talk. Yeah. yeah. We don't want to talk about it. the aging process, the dying process. It's just a part of it if we get to live that long, you know? Yes. Uh, when people... <laughs> or do- at some point, we're all going to go through it, right? Yes. So when people complain to me about getting older, I always say, think of the alternative. Exactly. <laughs> the alternative is dying young. So yes, exactly. Be happy for those age spots or whatever. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So after Lewis 
really, he he has a moral failure. He leaves his lover when his lover yes. needs him most. He has right. a moral failure. And then he has to wrestle with the fact that he failed to be the man that he had seen himself as. Right. And does he get to continue to have happiness because he's done that? Is it fair for him to seek another lover or another relationship? Yeah. And yeah. I think that haunt basically haunts him until he tries to return to make up or acknowledge what he's done. Um, and again, that I think is also very honest because yes. Pryor doesn't take him back, but does forgive him on some level. Right. I don't know. that I, I think it's a really beautifully handled, honest yeah, you did blow it, and I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to be with you. <laughs> yes, that is. that's It's very honest. Um, I We also, mm-hmm. when we were preparing, we talked about ways in which Belize is mm. wrestling, the, the nurse is yes. wrestling with yes. being nurse to Roy Cohn, who represents everything that makes life difficult for people like Belize. Yes. And prior. Yes. And Roy Cohn himself, I think you said it, is the one who doesn't seem to be wrestling at all. No. <laughs> he isn't wrestling with anything. He's and- playing games. Yes. You know, he's he's reshaping the narrative. This is what I am, but but that language in our culture gets me shunned. So that is not who I am, even though that really is who I am. We're going to call me something else, right? I'm dying of AIDS, but I am actually dying of kidney cancer. Yes. Yes. (laughs) He, he takes control of the narrative in a variety of ways. And he thinks he knows everything. So many of Roy's lines, I mean, the way that Kushner has portrayed this historical character, Kushner presents him as a know-it-all, someone who thinks he knows best, who -hmm. should be president, Mm -hmm. who should, who's guilty and who's not. I'm thinking of the Rosenberg case, Mm -hmm. Um, who's guilty, who's not, what should happen, how people should conduct themselves politically. He's openly racist, uses the N-word. He's also a self-hating gay person. We've talked about this. Mm-hmm. He's very mm-hmm. condemning of of gay people. So he, he isn't wrestling in any productive ways. But wouldn't you say that the fact that the woman that he condemned, I'm so sorry, I'm drawing a blank on her Ethel, name. But Ethel Rosenberg. Ethel Rosenberg, yeah. yeah, yeah. The fact that she is the one who keeps visiting him as he's dying. Mm. Doesn't that on some level indicate he's having an internal, he's wrestling with his conscience over what he's done? Or, I mean, I I say that, but then I also remember his final lines were something about, I beat you or something. Like he's still, even even to his dying breath, he's still trying to beat Ethel or prove that he was right or something. But she is the one who haunts him. Yeah, I don't know. I think I it's like kind that. of an interesting. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's a great interpretation of the presence of the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg in the play that she's haunting him because 
perhaps on some level he is wrestling with that. The fact that she's a ghost makes me think he's wrestling on some kind of unconscious level. We have to take a break in a minute, but I'm also remembering when we were preparing how we talked about wrestling as a model for how we can be ethical humans, that that's how we arrive at our decisions. It's how we come to terms with who we are, how we share ourselves with other people. It just functions as a metaphor for so much of what we do in relationships, mm-hmm. including in our relationship with ourselves. So we'll, we'll say more about that when we come back from this break. Yeah, take a listen to this, listeners. think we should talk about this scene with Pryor wrestling with an angel? Yes. Let's start by reading the scene. Um, so we've got a, a treat for you listeners. Jennifer and I are going to actually read the scene. And Jennifer will read the character Hannah. And just to refresh your memory, Hannah is the Mormon mother of Joe. Joe is a gay Mormon Republican who's really struggling with his identity. Primarily closeted, but also finally starting to embrace it. Yes, just beginning to experiment and and live more openly, not entirely openly, but a bit more Mm -hmm. openly. Mm -hmm. And Hannah's really wrestling with that. Her religious background hasn't prepared her to welcome her son's revelation. However... Her love for her son really Mm -hmm. overcomes her hesitation. And when she hears that her son is coming out as gay and her daughter-in-law is having a mental health crisis, she sells her house, drops everything, and runs out to New York to be with them and winds up becoming a caretaker for Pryor. So we're entering into a scene where Hannah and Pryor are together. Pryor is in the hospital and Hannah is caring for him. And Pryor is a very reluctant prophet. He doesn't like the fact that he's having visions. He doesn't like the fact that an angel is interacting with him. And because Hannah knows scripture, Pryor sees her as a resource and right. and says, what, what am I supposed to do yeah. with this? Um, Interpreter. Yeah. Yes. T- tell me what to do. So um, Hannah has a suggestion. So I'll read Pryor and I'm going to read some stage directions also so that you know what's going on in the scene. And Jennifer will read Hannah. So the angel is trying to give Pryor a book. He's trying to give Pryor a message that takes the form of a book. And Pryor says, take it back. The book, whatever you left in me, I won't be its repository. I reject it. And then to Hannah, Pryor says, help me out here. Help me. And Hannah closing her eyes tight, trying to shut it all out. I I don't. I don't. This is a dream. It's a it's a dream. It's it's a it's a I don't think that's really the point right at this particular 
particular... Oh, I don't know what to do. What? Well, it was your idea. Reject the vision, you said, and... Yeah, but I thought it was more, you, you know, metaphorical. Hey, you said scriptural precedent. You said... They're fighting over the blanket oh, that she's pulling over her head. They're fighting over the blanket. And Pryor says, what am I supposed to do? You, you wrestle her. Say what? It, it's an angel. You just grab her and say, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And then what? Then wrestle her till she gives in. You wrestle her. <laughs> I don't know how to wrestle. I, And then Pryor faces the angel. The angel opens her arm. Pryor draws as deep a breath as he can. And then, to his surprise and to Hannah's surprise, he charges at the angel. <laughs> he throws his arms around her waist, and the angel emits this terrible, really loud, eagle screech. I... And then Pryor speaks. I... I will not let thee go except thou bless me. The angel tries to get him off, <laughs> but he hangs on. And Pryor and the angel are wrestling. It's a life or death struggle. It's very serious. The angel at first is stronger and has the upper hand. But then Pryor starts to prevail. And while they're struggling, Pryor says, take back your book. Anti-migration, that's, it's so feeble. I can't believe you couldn't do better than that. Pryor's tenacity begins to tire and panic her. She screeches again. Then, unable to shake him off, she opens her wings wide and beat, begins to beat them, <laughs> battering Pryor. He loses his grip for an instant. She rises immediately into the air. Pryor leaps up, grabs her leg, and pulls her down with all his might and weight. She beats her wings more furiously, rising higher, lifting him off the ground. But he won't let go. Free me! Unfetter me! Bless me! Or whatever. But I will be let go. And the angel is straining heavenward but can't go any higher. And Pryor's weight causes her to lose altitude. So then what happens after that, things calm down after that. And the angel and Pryor continue talking. And in time, Pryor does go up to a heavenly realm with the angel and views a book and comes back with a message. And the angel does bless him. And the angel blesses Pryor with more life. That's what Pryor wants is more life, more time to live, and the angel grants it. So Jennifer, I remember you really liked that scene in the movie, you thought it was really funny. Yeah, I, yes, in the miniseries, I, I enjoyed the way they portrayed this in a very serious, but also hilarious, like, what you know, it, he's in the hospital bed, and he's in this angel has broken through, you know, the, the ceiling is wide open, and he's clinging to this Emma Thompson as the angel and, you know, and she's very confused and flailing and, you know, not even though she represents the almighty and, you know, thunderclaps and all this stuff come with her. He's utterly persistent and insistent and it's ridiculous. And he's got his 
face, you know, in her in her robes and also desperate, right? Yeah. Desperate to not be left with this thing he does not want to deal with. Yeah. Um, whether you think of it as, I think it might be both things that he's been, he, he feels a sense that he's been given a message is this thing about being a prophet. And he does not want to have to have that burden of being a prophet and bringing a message. But then there's also the piece that you've mentioned, and I think this is closer to the end. So this is more at this point about wanting more life. Um, I think yeah. right? he, he rest. Yeah. He has two different, I guess, two different scenes where he's kind of wrestling with them all with the angel in general. And then with the, maybe the panoply of angel or angelic beings later where he's, he's demanding life, but he is definitely wrestling in, in, in every way when he's encountering these supernatural beings. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And he doesn't like the message. The message that the angel has for him is stop moving. And he says, what kind of message is that? I mean, that's totally reactionary. It's a bad message. I don't want to carry that forward. The angels feel this is, this is just very interesting, an interesting idea. The angels feel that if people would stop moving, maybe God would be less interested in people. And maybe God would also stay in one place and be more predictable. The angels are aggrieved because they feel like God has absconded. The God in this play is that deus absconditus, a God who has taken off, and which is not a totally modern image of God. I believe it's also in the Hebrew Bible. You could probably even argue that to be out of a tomb is another kind of deus absconditus. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, well, that's, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> that, you could say that. that um, mm -hmm. But this idea of God not staying put bothers the angels. It doesn't bother Pryor, and he just rejects the idea that staying in one place is a good idea. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, what I also appreciate that we see both in the scene we just read, but also, and again, I'm referring more to the short, the miniseries version of it. And you're, you, Gene, are working with being very familiar with the script. Yes. So we're kind of working at, on, on two different ways here, but two different levels. But I, the scene also where he meets, um, he meets a friend. Was it Lewis that he agreed to meet in public? And and he is early, this is prior to the scene we just mm -hmm. read, and he is aware of being some form of a prophet, and he has a really sketchy message or a message he's 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 kind of concerned about, and the message itself, or he is sounding like he doesn't make any sense, yeah. and but he's certain about this message. And, you know, both of these scenes are, to me, are interesting ways of presenting what the prophets in terms of the Hebrew Bible prophets, what they would have mm -hmm. been like, because mm -hmm. sometimes they had really wacky messages. And, sure. and we refer to those kind of as sometimes they had symbolic, symbolic gestures where they enacted some part of their, their message. And it would look kind of bizarre because it's a metaphor or an allegory, but, but also the prophets in general resist being a prophet there's we have yeah. a whole thing that we talk about in terms of the literary elements of a call narrative there are elements you know he they they are called by god they resist they they 
you know, say I'm not worthy of it. Um, Mm -hmm. There's some gesture on the angel, the messenger's part to prove that they are or to reassure them or to cleanse them in some way, you you know, symbolic gestures. And then when they see that oh, I'm not getting out of this, or I'm okay, I'm I'm your servant, I'm here, then they agree and step out or whatever. But sometimes their messages then are either not well received, or they're just a little bit confusing. So yeah, I like that part of this play that Kushner tries, it seems to me, tries to honor kind of this this in-between space or something, you know, Yes. when you're, yes. when you're trying to speak on behalf of something that is maybe exists in a different, uh, comes from beyond or something, right? Yeah. And you're going to end up looking a little bit crazy or sounding a little crazy or a little bit off, right? Because you're not, yeah. you're bringing something new. I don't know. I, I just appreciated yeah. his gesture there. Yeah, and I remember when we were preparing, you were saying that Kushner really seems to be actively uh, calling attention to that fine line between madness and having a vision. And Pryor is not the only one. There's also Harper. Harper is having visions. That's right. And Harper has, I don't know whether to call him an imaginary friend or someone, a, a visitation. Right you know, from Mr. Lies. Yeah. And so there are these ways in which uh, Harper interacts with this dream figure, Mr. Lies, but her marriage is built of lies. And so actually, when she's interacting with Mr. Lies, even though it's kind of crazy, and it's a vision, it's also true. Yeah. And Kushner does really really play with that. I wanted to go back when you were talking about the call narrative in biblical texts and there being this pattern of prophets being reluctant. The quintessential reluctant prophet is Jonah, (laughs) who gets mentioned in the play. That's right. That's right. He, He gets mentioned a couple of times. There's a funny scene earlier than the one that we read, a scene between Hannah and Pryor where Pryor asks Hannah, like, do prophets ever just reject their vision? Do they reject the prophecy and just say, I won't do it? And Hannah says, yeah, yeah, there, there, there are. <laughs> and and Pryor says, um, well, uh, what does God do with them? And Hannah says, he feeds them to whales. <laughs> um, so, I mean, Jonah runs in the other direction, right? Go to Nineveh. Oh, my gosh. Where's the other direction yep. from that? I'm going to run in the other direction. But right. like Pryor, he gets dragged more or less screaming That's right. into his That's right. vocation. And then, yeah, go ahead, jump in. And, I mean, and so does Amos, right? I think Amos is my favorite for so many reasons. And one is, he's like, I, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. I tend, <laughs> I tend trees, you know, but here I am yeah. because I just... I've been given these wacky visions and these are actually decently interpretable visions, by the way. And yeah. And so he goes to the North and they're telling him to go home. We don't want to hear your visions, your prophets, your message, you know, but he's like, look, it's not my idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's never a welcome message. And I'm, I'm thinking of Moses also, who, when he has his initial vision with the burning bush and Yahweh suggests that he goes and speaks to Pharaoh and 
demands an end to enslavement, Moses says, oh, not me. I mean, I, I don't speak well. Like, <laughs> right, that would not be right. me. You, you know, get, yeah. you got to get somebody else. Same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah. very interesting. And Pryor is like that as well. So before we close, I would like to bring this back to a conversation about the United States, because it's angels in America, and the angel is an angel of America. So when we're talking about reluctant prophets and we're talking about um, wrestling, wrestling, wrestling and with our own selves. Yes, yeah. all of it. And also I'm thinking about the very end of the play. We talked about it when we were doing the episode about angels and healing, and I would say that the play itself is wrestling with the difficulties that we all have. Citizens, we have a difficulty. We wrestle with, like, how do we have a multicultural democracy? How do we actually run pluralism? I mean, we're living through a time when we have this polarization that we, we talk about all the time, the, the great difficulty of the degree of polarization that we have now, and we just struggle to actually run a democracy. And I think that the play is asking us to, as readers, to wrestle with all of that, to wrestle with the difficult aspects of American culture. And I think to wrestle with each other. The play juxtaposes characters that would seem to be on opposing sides, but manages to make them speak to each other and brings them together by the end of the play in a vision that's, that's ultimately right. healing and unifying. So I think that's the play's challenge to us. And I think that's the play's message to us that American culture, multicultural democracy, pluralism is incredibly unwieldy, incredibly difficult, but that it's worth wrestling with. And we, we need right. to wrestle with that's it. Right. And um, I, I do appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I do too. And I, I, I think, especially as an educator, I think about the element of when I, I think of Hannah and how her ultimate turn when she was challenged was to seek to understand. She started asking questions of other people that would help her understand her son. And for whatever reasons, that just warms my heart. I'm not even a mother, right? But I just, I love that yeah. that that's that's probably genuine of i think of many parents but also that that's where we that's how we learn that's how we get to something new that's how we understand each other better it's not sometimes it's just that simple of listening to each other and seeking to find new experiences or listen to other people with different experiences just so we can try to understand that, you know? Yes. So I, I think the educator in me wants to celebrate the, this piece of coming together, but also listening to each other. Yeah. And um, I guess the educator in me responds to the educator in you. And, <laughs> what, you know, where that takes me is there's a listening that we can do with biblical texts that's that's radical. When we listen to someone like Tony Kushner offer us a new view of biblical texts that we 
we hold familiar, but we haven't necessarily allowed the biblical text to lead us into, say, conversations about coming out as queer or conversations mm -hmm. about transitioning from a conservative religious tradition to embracing people mm -hmm. that we formerly held to be too different to love. Mm -hmm. Hannah, mm -hmm. maybe before she had a son who was gay, maybe thought of gay people as being too difficult to love, not inside her circle, but by the end of the play, she has enlarged her mm -hmm. capacity to love. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate the way we're asked to listen differently to biblical texts by Kushner. So thank you for engaging them with me. Yeah. Thank you for your insights, in particular from a more literary perspective. Mm. It's been fun to talk about this play with you yeah. with these lenses in hand. So. And listeners, thank you for joining us. We're so happy to let you in on our conversations and Remember that you can hit us up on Facebook or on Instagram. Um, you can reach out. We're happy to take questions. We're happy to hear your suggestions for content to cover. So thank you again for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. Thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 4 of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends about the show. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. You may have noticed we changed our schedule recently. New episodes are now on the first and third Fridays of each month. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield, audio produced by Clara Carrera and Matt Byrne. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Hey, we'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. We'll see you then.